Gene Clements was born and raised in the Rexburg area. He has worked at BYU-Idaho for 42 years. In addition to his employment, he has served in many callings within the church. He has served multiple times as a primary teacher, counselor in different elders quorum presidencies, counselor in two bishoprics, elders quorum president, and bishop. Brother Clements has also served in YSA stakes as a high counselor and as a counselor in a stake presidency. Currently, Brother Clements is serving as the Sunday School Presidency Secretary in the Wilford Second Ward. Jean married Julie Bowles Clements on March 7, 1979. They are the parents of four daughters and one son, and they are the grandparents of 21 grandchildren. Jean enjoys taking his camper and spending time in the mountains with his wife and family. I've chosen to share a few thoughts today on the light of Christ. As I do so, I pray the Spirit will be with each of us, that we may gain something the Lord knows we need in our lives. I would like to start with what I feel is one of the most dramatic physical examples of the light of Christ in our dispensation. It comes from Joseph Smith history, 1, 15 through 17. As Joseph Smith knelt in a grove of trees, saying a humble prayer, what happened? He was seized upon by a power which entirely overcame him, even to the point that he couldn't speak. Thick darkness gathered around him to where he felt he was doomed to sudden destruction by the power of some actual being from an unseen world. Joseph exerted all his power, calling on God to deliver, from, to deliver him, and he saw a pillar of light exactly over his head that was above the brightness of the sun and was immediately delivered from the enemy that bound him. What is the light of Christ? In John 1.9, it describes it as, That was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. In the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints' Guide to the Scriptures, it states that the light of Christ is divine energy, power, or influence that proceeds from God through Christ and gives life and light to all things. It is the law by which all things are governed in heaven and on earth. The light of Christ should not be confused with the Holy Ghost. The light of Christ is not a person. It is an influence that comes from God and prepares a person to receive the Holy Ghost. One manifestation of the light of Christ is conscience, which helps a person choose between right and wrong. I love this video about the light of Christ. If I had to use uh, one word to describe light, I would use the word radiance. There's a brilliance and a sense of direction that comes from light. If you are in a totally pitch dark room and there's the smallest element of light, then that light chases the darkness, but the darkness cannot overrule the light. So associated with light is a warmth, 
associated with darkness is a coolness that I think is very significant. The light of Christ is what many people would call a conscience, but it's more than a psychological effect that takes place within people. Someone can be riding on a bus, see someone in distress, and feel a compassion and a desire to assist and serve this person. Many people would say, nah, that's just natural behavior, but it's more. It is the influence of God that pulls us, that influences us to be good and to do good. Every person ever born in history, now, in the future, is influenced by the light of Christ for goodness. As we yield to that influence to do good and become good, then the light of Christ increases within us. As we disobey, light is decreased and can ultimately be diminished. How many of you have been, have seen a beautiful view or unusual sight? You pull your cell phone out and zoom in to get a better picture, but you've zoomed too far. Now you can't see most of the object. So you zoom out slower to get the shot you want. All of us get ready for work, school, meetings, dates, shopping, or whatever. We usually look in a mirror to make sure we are ready to go. I know for me, leaving whiskers under the nose area when shaving is something that always needs a closer look. So I zoom in, so to speak, and get my face really close to the mirror to check the problem area. If there are no straggler whiskers, great, and off I go. Sometimes I forget to zoom back out and take one last look at my whole face. So during breakfast or when I go to kiss my wife goodbye for work, she will touch my cheek with her finger and say, you missed some whiskers right here. When you get up in the morning, do you zoom in on certain things like a cold sore, a blemish, a red eye, a scar, or crooked teeth, or something like that? As we zoom in and concentrate on these things, Worldly views and media may narrow our perspective of what perfection and acceptability are. Namely, gorgeous bodies, flawless hair and skin, or fashionable clothes and accessories. How often does one flaw, one bad grade, or one mistake distort our normal outlook? Satan wants us to think we are ugly or stupid to lose confidence in ourselves, to feel hopeless and overwhelmed, to feel that we cannot correct a wrong. When we let Satan's influence affect our judgment and decision-making, the light of Christ that is in us starts to dim. In 1 Samuel 16, 7, it states, 
For the Lord seeth not as a man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. This is how the Savior looks at each and every one of us. He does not zoom in on what we feel to be our weaknesses. He looks into our heart and sees if we are radiating his light in our actions and deeds. In President Thomas S. Monson's book, Pathway to Perfection, this is what he has to say about 1 Samuel 16:7. Shame and hypocrisy found no place with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He denounced the scribes and Pharisees for their vanity and shallow lives, their pretense and feigned righteousness. He called them like unto whited sepulchers, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones. He then went on to say the master could be found mingling with the poor, the downtrodden, the oppressed, and the afflicted. He brought hope to the hopeless, strength to the weak, and freedom to the captive. He taught of the better life to come, even eternal life, end quote. As the light of Christ shines through us, we could compare it to sunrises and sunsets. What we do with the light of Christ in our lives will be as different as the colors of a sunrise or a sunset. This light does not grow brighter with cosmetics expensive clothes, or fancy cars. Instead, it increases with Christ-like acts. Last week's, in last week's devotional address, Brother Brian Byron Gilbert talked about the goal of a CPR class and how practicing the techniques over and over and over again prepares the participant for a real-life situation if needed. I believe that is why the light of Christ is given to every person on earth. As we act on a feeling or impression to help others in small ways, doing it over and over again becomes a part of our daily lives. Examples include taking an extra few minutes to help a friend, being kind to someone less fortunate, speaking a soft word to someone who is stressed or angry, or giving up something that we want in order to make someone else's day more joyful, comfortable, or happy. I would like to tell you about two men that fit these criteria. The first man was one of my co-workers in the carpenter shop when I started working at Ricks College. I was warned by several people that he had a reputation of being a prankster and made life interesting. One time he grabbed some stale bread, wilted lettuce, and whatever else he could find from the MC kitchen garbage room and put together a sandwich. Then he wrapped it and swapped it out for one in a co-worker's lunchbox. A 26-pound lead brick in your empty lunchbox or the lunchbox screwed to the bench was not uncommon. After a short time, I was assigned to work with John. My zoomed-in perspective changed as I worked with him. He always talked about his mission to Sweden, the home of his ancestors, and how he loved the people there. After he passed away, I learned he bought a piano for a small branch in Sweden at the end of his mission. He would drive to Idol Falls once a week to serve in the Idol Falls temple. At his home one evening, a young married expectant mother came to talk to his wife, who was in the Relief Society leadership and also a nurse. 
As they talked in the kitchen, he overheard the woman say something about needing money paid up front before they could have the baby. He got his checkbook, signed a blank check, took it into the kitchen, and told her to go take it and go have her baby. But the one thing for me that really sticks in my mind was how he prayed. The first time I heard him pray, I thought that if I had opened my eyes, I would have seen Christ listening intently. His prayers were like that every time. The second man was a farmer and rancher, as well as working full-time for the UNI Sugar Company in Idaho Falls. After taking a temple prep class, he and his wife, his parents, and another couple went to the temple, received their endowment, and were then sealed to their families. While going through the endowment session, there was a jackhammer doing construction work on the temple. And as a result of him not hearing well and not being totally prepared and committed, his experience was not good, and he slowly went back into inactivity. As his sons were growing up, he taught them by example, long hours, and hard work how to care for the animals and crops. He also thought, taught them to serve others. Many times, a neighbor's equipment would break down, cows would get out, fires would burn pens and outbuildings. Whenever there was someone in need, he would rush to help, usually bringing his sons along with him. Between farm and ranch work and his full-time job, as well as helping others, days were always busy. But when an opportunity arose and there was a short break, he would take his boys fishing on the nearby creeks and canals or hunting. He loved his family, and even though he didn't attend church much, he went to baby blessings, baptisms, ordinations, etc. He supported them in scouting and school activities, as well as their church responsibilities and callings. He served on several fundraising committees for his ward. One was a ward cookbook. The funds went to an elder's quorum. Another he raised funds for and helped prepare supper for communities after the Teton Dam collapsed. Their ward community did not get flooded, so they would invite wards who had been impacted to come to their church throughout the summer for a pig roast with all the trimmings and fun activities. One November day, while packing bales of straw to tuck his beehives for protection from the winter weather, he had a coughing spell due to a cold. As he was coughing, he bent over the bale of straw and felt a sharp pain in his lower rib area. But it went away shortly after. But day by day, the pain increased, so he went to the doctor who prescribed an antibiotic and told him to come back next week if it did not improve. The pain was not improving, so he was sent to the hospital for x-rays. The following day, when he went back in for the results, he had indeed broken a rib. But the x-rays revealed more. Several dark spots were scattered through his chest cavity. After multiple failed attempts to retrieve a, temple, a tissue sample, the decision was made to do major surgery to get the sample. The results came back a form of kidney cancer with a dim prognosis. After two unsuccessful chemo treatments, his health went downhill fast. 
With his illness came the desire to return to the temple. He told his wife he wanted to go back to the temple, but did not know if it would be possible. His bishop and a member of the stake presidency come to his home and interviewed him. Arrangements were then made by the elders' quorum presidency and his bishop to get a van, because he was very weak and in a wheelchair, and physically help him go through a session. This time, in spite of the pain, he had a very special feeling as he attended the temple. Though the lives of these two men were totally different, their Christ-like actions radiated a light to me, my family, and all they served. The first man truly was like a second father to me over the years. The second man was my father, who passed away at the age of 42, one month before I started working at the college. Now fast forward 28 and a half years after my father's death. I was serving as a bishop in our stake presidency, and our stake presidency was going to be released. All bishops and members of the High Council were going to be interviewed by Elder Richard G. Scott of the Quorum of the Twelve and Elder Jose A. Teixeira of the Seventy. As I walked into the stake president's office that Saturday morning for the interview, I went to shake Elder Scott's hand and got a big hug instead. He then started to go over the information sheet we provided and noticed that I worked at BYU-Idaho. He asked me how long I had worked there. After I responded, he then said, Thank you for your many years of service and sacrifice. He then asked me one question. Why do you hold your temple recommend sacred and dear? I told them about the experience my father had the first time he went through the temple, and how he had returned to the temple just before his death. I explained that I was not sure if he had gone back for the right reasons. So I wanted to show him how important the temple was to me, and that through my actions he might understand its importance. We then finished the interview, and he thanked me for my service as a bishop, and told me the Lord would bless me as I served those of my ward. As we stood up to leave, I went to shake his hand, but Elder Scott was a hugger. So after a second hug, I turned and proceeded to leave the room. About halfway out the door, I heard Elder Scott say, Bishop Clements. I paused and looked back as he said, I just want you to know that your father is accepting those covenants he made in the temple. I thanked him and hurried home to relate the experience to my wife. I knew that I had to tell my mom, so we invited her up for dinner after state conference the next day. As I related the happenings of the previous day, she began to cry and told me that she had been wondering the same thing for years. These two pictures are just like the two men I spoke about. As they, as they radiated Christ's light through their actions, Christ saw the beauty in their hearts despite their imperfections. What is it that makes sunrises and sunsets so unique and beautiful? Obstacles or imperfections in the atmosphere like clouds, rain, smoke or dust, 
change the direction of the light rays, causing them to scatter. When we are kind, patient, loving, and share our time, talents, and belongings with others that have had obstacles, big or small, in their lives, our light scatters and Christ zooms out past our shortcomings and sees our hearts as well. Christ's life was simple. He showed love and compassion to everyone he came in contact with through example. Elder Scott's hugs that day, I was interviewed, did the same thing for me. I felt the genuine love and apostle of an apostle for me personally. On the devotional discussion board, I ask you to think of someone in your life who radiates the light of Christ and share some thoughts about them. Friends, co-workers, supervisors, scoutmaster, leader, and mother were on this list. I would have to agree with Mitch Nelson when he stated, quote, my mom is the most Christ-like person I know, end quote. I am lucky enough to be married to someone just as loving and caring as my mother. May the light of Christ fill in the blank in our lives, both by the actions of others for us and by our Christ-like service to our fellow men, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.